Welcome to Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and maybe even feelings of hopelessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. So uh, I'm joined here today with uh, Jennifer, who is, full disclosure, um, actually one of my former students when I was a high school teacher. Um, I taught history for 12 years in LAUSD from 2000 to 2012. And somewhere in that 12 years, Jennifer was a sophomore (laughs) um, at Los Angeles Senior High School. And um, she is now graduating from USC Medical School uh, and is about to begin residency uh, and beginning to practice uh, medicine on on her own and, and begin that path. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, describe where you're at right now, what city, what state, and um, what does it look like in the exact location that you're, that you're in? Are you sitting on the couch? Are you outside in the backyard? Anything like that, just to give us a, a visual in our minds. Well, thank you, Felicia, for having me on your show um, today, your podcast. Um, So I am currently in Los Angeles, California, still in the same home that I lived at when I was at LA High. I'm currently in my uh, workspace slash closet room. It's all one space. Um, But yeah, that's where I am right now, staying away from my family while I do this podcast. (laughs) So, so you're staying away from family in, in the closet workspace <laughs> in the yeah. same home. So, so how long have you lived then in the home that you're in right now? Um, I have lived here since I was 12 years old um, and I'm now 28. So it's been about 16 years. So, so this is a very familiar home. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Um, I think these are the moments when we appreciate things that are incredibly familiar as we are in a time when familiar is not at all how I would explain uh, or describe this moment, but it could be. And that's sort of what this podcast is about. So next question, could you describe what your life was like before the pandemic became what we know it to be right now? What were you doing um, in school? What was what was uh, medical school like at that time? Was it very stressful? What were you doing for fun? If anything, I hear medical school is kind of takes <laughs> over your life. Yeah. Um, what were you doing for exercise? And, and again, this could be like before pandemic as in January, December. I don't know. In the medical field, did you all know about this so much sooner? So when, when was the before for you as well? And then what is it like now? And if anything has changed, what is that? Yeah, so, I mean, I could go back to January um, when I was in the um, coronary or cardiac care unit and take care of uh, very sick patients with, um, like, heart failure that's been kind of, like, untreated or, um, you know, having heart attacks, things like that. Um, So taking care of those patients. And at that time, um, you know, the biggest concern really was we had a, I remember we had a patient who had the flu and who had a cardiomyopathy or a problem with their heart that was, you know, caused by the flu. Um, so I, 
feel like even in January, we weren't, you know, really thinking about that. We were kind of learning about the different, even, even at this point in my educational career, kind of learning about the different effects that the flu, which has been around for, you know, quite a long time now, um, the different effects that it can have um, on people's health. I, for me, I don't think it was until the end of January when I was transitioning to a rotation for uh, what they call a sub-internship at uh, Kaiser, where I was going to be doing family medicine. And I remember hearing about it on the news, kind of um, just what was going on in China and um, just kind of thinking, oh, wow, like that sounds very scary, mm-hmm. um, but never thinking about how the, the you know the the effect that it was going to have here i remember um think like you know also hearing like it was very much like the flu and so i i kind of also thought oh it's like the flu um and i remember when i was at kaiser um we i, I had a patient who required me to uh, wear an n95 mask um and even then there was already a shortage of masks Um, And so I remember going um, to like a nursing station and usually they have like all the masks and stuff set outside of a patient room Mm -hmm. um, if there are certain precautions that we need to take with those patients. Sure. In this case, they didn't have any of the masks there, just kind of um, like the gowns and the gloves. So I had to go ask um, at the nursing station and they were like, okay, here's this uh, one mask and you have to use this mask all day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, like... Uh, I've never heard of this, you know, before. And they were just saying like, oh, there's like a big, there's like a shortage already at this time when we still really didn't have or know of very many cases yet. Um, I think, I think at that time, the case in Washington might have been like already. Yeah, that was starting to grow uh, late January, early February. But there's, there's, there's a lot in, in what I'm hearing that um, you say about the before that really sort of hits home on this idea of over there. It's in Mm -hmm. China, it's in Washington, it's in these other places. It it hasn't gotten close geographically or physically to you, even though you were already dealing with patients who required you to wear a mask. Um, They had the flu. So the idea of something coming around that could really hurt somebody who was already medically speaking, um, weak or weakened in some way, that's sort of like always something that will come up at some point in medicine. But this, this was very significant. And, and I'm wondering, when you asked and inquired about the lack of protective gear, like masks in particular, mm-hmm. hearing that there was like already a, a shortage well before this was really coming down, why was there a shortage? Like, do you, do you know where that shortage comes from? Like, I know we've had a lot of fires in Southern California and on the West Coast in the last few years, and that's where a lot of um, sort of purchases or people needing the masks was coming from, like day, regular people, you know, like the, the, the sort of thickness of the smoke in the air was so intense that people I know in the Bay Area and even parts of Southern California were wearing these masks in their day-to-day life to stop all the, all the chemicals and toxins from smoke. But do you know of any other information with regards to why there was a shortage other than maybe fire? And I don't even know if that's the reason why there would have been a shortage. 
Yeah, um, I'm actually like, that's a very good question and something that I haven't really like looked into. I know that that they're very like difficult masks to make. I know like, that's one thing um, from what I know of in general, they're also very expensive. So accessibility is probably another problem. I think likely that hospitals probably have like a certain amount of storage um, that they kind of have. And also they, they have expiration dates. So my guess is- Wait, know, I, time, time, time. Yeah. The masks have expiration dates? Yeah, so the masks do have expiration dates. Um, for example, um, I read an article today about um, how go um, Governor Newsom here in uh, California uh, they, they had a storage of like uh, of these N95 masks, a secret location or something yeah. like that. Um, and but apparently they're all or a lot of them were expired. But according to the CDC, despite them being like expired or what it, from what it says on the box, that they are still able to be used. Um, right. So, something, I mean, something is better than anything at this point. <laughs> yeah, I'll, eat, I mean, I'll eat an expired Pop-Tart <laughs> if it comes down to it and I don't have any more food. Seems like that's where we're at right now. Yeah. I mean, there's people using bandanas out there. So I, yeah. I would totally relate with being able to use that. Um, yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm not also really sh like familiar with, you know, what the materials are, what would make it expired and what that even means. I'm always suspicious when things say that they're ex they have an expiration date. Like Coca-Cola cans have an expiration date. What does that mean exactly? You know, and, and for me, an expiration date can mean, yes, this will go bad and hurt you, or this will no longer be at the sort of best or peak performance, right? So it's, yes. it's clearly not that the expired masks will harm people who use them. It is mm -hmm. possible that they will not be as strong or as powerful in what they could prevent if they're post that expiration date though. Okay, so that's, that's the medicine sort of school and work life. Um, what was your life like before when you weren't? on a rotation or in medical school, what, what were you doing when you did have um, this thing called free time? Yeah, so um, the nice thing about fourth year in medical school is that um, you get a lot of elective time, so you get flexibility with um, what your schedule is like. So in December, I took, um, because in December, there's also still interviews going on for residency, so that's kind of what I was doing, and I was taking an online class, which was called Preparing to Teach and Lead, um, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, learning how to teach as a resident to medical students, um, how to be a leader uh, as a, you know, as a physician and being an advocate and things like that, um, so during that time, I, we only met once a week, and then I kind of had books to read uh, for that course. And outside of that, um, I would just kind of hang out with my family here at home um, on the weekends, uh, see my fiance, um, and uh, help take care of his niece. Um, those were kind of like the big things for me. Um, yoga, um, working out at home is kind of like what I like to do. Um, those are kind of like the day-to-day -day things that I would do. Mm -hmm. So now we are on the other side of that, where we are now in a full global pandemic. What has changed? Yeah, so now um, our medical school has pulled us out of our clinical rotations. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on... Uh, 
diagnostic radiology for the last four weeks. So I was there for two weeks uh, and then we got pulled out the last two weeks. So basically what that meant was I was no longer going to the hospital and working with the, the residents there and kind of learning directly hands-on about radiology. Um, now, and then I had to take like an online final and we had to do online cases. So kind of, um, I feel like for radiology, it was kind of easy for them to transition online because radiology is like a lot of images. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. But then um, in a week from now, I'm supposed to start medicine rotation, which is just like general, like, you know, general inpatient hospitalizations, that sort of thing. And so they, ex it was the, this like, pulling us out of the clinical rotations was only supposed to be until Friday, but they extended it until April um, 17th. So now that medicine rotation for two weeks will be online. And I don't really know what that means because yeah. medicine, like, you know, medicine is kind of like something that you learn hands-on and I guess maybe they'll do cases or something like special cases that we really need to know. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've spoke with like the, the medical student educators and they told me that it's possible for the last two weeks that we will go back um, depending on, you know, what the medical school decides in, re in regards to us going back or just kind of finishing off the year um, online. And I don't really know what that's going to look like. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of folks who are having to transfer um, their teaching and learning from in-person and hands-on to online are all struggling with, the unknownness of what that looks like and how that translates in terms of is what I'm teaching translating through a screen is what you're learning translating. Are you really able to embody it? Like it feels like so much of medicine is about learning hands-on so that literally what you have to do is embodied is kinesthetic from the moment that you actually have to do it outside of a, of a learning environment. And I'm interested in if you could share a little bit about, um, the idea of what does it look like for you right now and what does it feel like to imagine that, um, I guess what I'm trying, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is somewhat complicated. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's not necessarily about, about online teaching or learning, but I've had a lot of conversations with people where this time period has made folks slow down, really stop and slow down what they're doing. Whether that's making dinner is now slower. You know, it's not running to a restaurant and taking takeout or going through the drive-through and getting food. It's having to be home. So having to look at what you have as ingredients and make something that people are spending more time with their families and friends that just the world has just slowed down. And I guess my question is, does that help you in your practice of medicine and learning to practice medicine to slow down, right? So you mentioned that some of your online classes, instead of being hands-on and, hey, so there's this patient, here's what's going on, what do you think, you know, are some possible outcomes and things we should do? Instead, it's online and it might be really in-depth case studies of things that have happened in the past and things that were learned and how you would, how you would maybe handle it in, in a given situation. 
is that slowdown helpful? Like you've been in medical school for a while. I imagine things are very fast paced. Having to learn is very fast paced. Does the slowdown help? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, um, it's kind of difficult to really assess for me because I think that I don't know if it's just because I'm like, we're so used to it as medical students to kind of be sometimes thrown into the fire and Mm -hmm. to like, in regards to like what we're learning and they describe our learning as like drinking water from like a fire hydrant. And so, (laughs) and so. Wait, I'm just trying to imagine that drinking water from a fire hydrant. That doesn't actually feel like you're drinking water. I think they, they might also refer to that as waterboarding and it's torture, but yes, I got it. Okay. Thank you. Got it. Okay. Um, Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I find it difficult for me to learn. I feel before I was very in undergraduate, for example, it was all like the book right like I had to learn everything from the book besides yeah. from like what my teachers were teaching me I had to learn from a book and now I feel that because I'm so used to like being patient and learning from my patients um you know remembering my patients faces like oh yes like I, like I can visualize what like who my first heart failure patient was who was my first patient with you know um COPD um mm-hmm. you know my my first a patient who had like terminally ill cancer and who I spent like a lot of time with and like you know those are like things that really help me connect um Mm -hmm. the learning it was like beyond um you know what the book or the text or the cases online could teach me because I feel like sometimes I could read something over and over again and then it comes up on the exam and I still can't remember it if I haven't actually experienced it so I think Mm -hmm. it's kind of harder in that sense Mm -hmm. but I think in regards to like you kind of mentioned like talking about being able to spend more time with family and like kind of slowing that aspect down of my life I think it's kind of made me realize um how much time like I haven't spent with my family despite the fact that I live here um (laughs) or how much time like I'm here but I'm not really there right um, because there's always something else on my mind and now I kind of have like time to separate those things um so in that regard I feel that um it's going to help me in the future become like being able to compartmentalize those things like work life home life and and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. you know what's fascinating um listening to you is that some of the things you were explaining about not having access to materials that were critical and that are crucial to you being able to do your job effectively and to be held accountable for it, right? Like if you don't have the safety mechanisms and materials to feel safe about practicing medicine, you might not practice it to your best ability. And then you're held responsible for harming someone, but really it's because you didn't have the equipment that you needed. And that story reminds me of how you and I met. So you and I met in a classroom. And when I first started teaching at LA High, I was put in a room that used to be the room for detention. It had a hole in the wall. I had 40 students, but only 23 desks. Half the desks were broken, like the literal table or the back of the chair wasn't there. I didn't have a single textbook for two years. Um, And I could go on and on, but I did not have what I needed to effectively do the job 
that I had been, you know, wishing and hoping and praying and doing everything my whole life to be. It's all I ever wanted to be was a teacher. And here were all these limitations to how I could effectively do my job. And I had to work around and figure out all these ways to still make it happen and still live out my dream. And knowing that at the end of every year, there is going to be tests that were going to tell the world how good I was at my job, even though I didn't have everything that I needed to be able to do it effectively. And so just like you, we had the same issue and teachers get this all the time, you know, like, so you want me to go and pick up supplies and get donations of supplies for what I need in the classroom? And we would say all the time, would you ask that of doctors? Would you say to doctors on their way to surgery, hey, can you pick up something that might be like scrubs or can you bring your own gloves? And those were the comments that we would ask, um, you know, and the points we would make in the early thousands to say they have it better than us. Mm-hmm. And what you're sharing is that it's the same. Medical professionals, teachers, home service providers. There's so many of us who literally work for the most vulnerable communities who do not have what we need. And the other thing that I heard from you that I felt, wow, we've had very similar experiences (laughs) is the idea that if you experience it, you're going to you know, if you have a connection with someone, if there's a story that develops with the people that you're working with, it incredibly and deeply informs who you are in that profession. Every one of those patients, knowing them, their faces, their families, what they're going through and remembering them. Just like you said, I remember my first this, that, and the other. I remember my first student who I could not stand. His name was Michael And he would get up and dance and sing in the middle of class every time I was trying to get started. And I remember talking to my teacher friend and and her telling me I had a Michael, but their name was, you know, different. But everybody has that first of whatever, and they stick with you and they stay with you just like you have stuck with me. And so it's very interesting to me, the parallel um, experiences and stories that you and I have being completely different ages in completely different professions, but struggling with the same things, which is to help people become their best selves in whatever way that looks like, whether it's health-wise or education, learning, confidence, and health-wise. So I really, I'm super juiced and pumped on this time with you um, (laughs) to fill this sort of whole full circle-ness. The next question I have for you is, does this time right now of, I don't, I don't have materials, I don't have what I need, um, I thought everything was going to be in person, now it's online, I, I don't know if now I'm in more harm's way for my own life or not, um, just the, the, all the uncertainty and also some of the fear, like, I just expressed how you and I had this similar experience. Is this experience, though, with the COVID pandemic and you getting into medicine right now and having to do all this, does this remind you of any other time in your life before this moment that you can tap into and think, oh, wow, I've maybe been somewhat here before, but it looked very different. And, and what, was, what would that moment maybe be? That's a good question. 
Well, I think I'll first express like the feelings that I have. And I think that most of the feelings that I have, like being on a classroom online, I feel that that's probably the smallest of the obstacles. I think the biggest thing right now, the scariest thing right now for me is seeing like all my colleagues who are out there on the like front lines who are working hard day in and day out trying to figure out how they're going to get child care for their own kids how you know they're going to protect themselves how are they going to protect their other patients and a lot of he- healthcare systems have like transitioned to like telephone visits for you know visits that are um, not related or are not suspected to be uh, COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But those like in the emergency rooms, um, you know, all those, the, the residents attending, doctors, everyone out there who's like, there's so many efforts out there in regards to trying to collect um, the protective equipment. Um, and I feel like the government is just not protecting the the healthcare providers or um, even providing for the patients sufficient testing for this. Um, I feel like we're already way behind in our testing. If even our numbers like are really high, I feel that they're not actually reflective of the numbers that are out there. I've heard stories of um, some nurses not even doing these tests properly. Um, so they're not trained properly and then they come back negative, but you know, and send this person home thinking that they're negative and yet they're probably not. Um, so I think that right. it's like very scary. Um, and then kind of in regards to going, starting to go out into the field, it's just kind of knowing that you're just going to even more so being thrown into the fire than you would already. Um, so I think maybe to not the same degree, but I mean, I feel like that transition from, you know, going to LA high to starting college is um, kind of like that similar experience. We're feeling like even though you've kind of had like, oh, I made it to graduate high school and like, I don't know. And now I got into college, so it must mean something. But then I got into college and I was in remedial classes. So then it just felt like everything else Mm. was going to, everything else was just going to fall apart and I wasn't going to be able to become a doctor and maybe I should just consider a different career. Um, So I think it's not to the same extent, but just feeling like you don't have the resources. Um, And I think it just kind of happened to me like every single step of the way, like, um, you know, not having the prep for SAT or um, when I had to take the MCAT and not knowing till maybe my fourth year of undergrad, really, like what the MCAT entails and what the um, the MCAT is kind of like the SAT for medical school. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like what the application process entailed um, and really having to like search out in the world, like what are the resources available for, um, you know, for a person of color who um, has a, a, a background coming from a public school system and um, doesn't really have the experience of navigating the system um, in that way. So I think like I feel 
for the people right now who have to navigate this system, um, this healthcare system. I, I read a story about a teenager who in the Valley who um, didn't have health insurance and was turned away at an urgent care clinic, told to go to a county hospital and um, died on route to the hospital of COVID. So, I mean, like those stories, it's just like, it's, it's the difficult stories and the stories that I hoped as a physician, like my goal is to work with the underserved communities. And like, I feel for those people and I'm, I'm scared for those people as much as I'm scared for um, my colleagues about what's really like going to happen in the future. So that's the bleakest story in picture that I think I've heard in a very long time. And I'm, I'm and no, 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 it's, it's real, you know, and, and, and we're giggling and, and, and sort of like laughing because that's, that's how you, I have, I have been learning in my own yoga practice about holding your breath and how we unconsciously hold our breath more often than we realize as we're struggling to lift something or we hear some kind of news um, that, you know, is shocking and we <gasps> hold our breath about it. And then the giggle sometimes for me is how I remind myself to breathe. You know, like when you laugh, you, you kind of breathe a lot. Yeah. All of a sudden you're taking in a lot of air and I find myself having that awkward giggle more than I would like to lately, almost as my body, you know, jerking me into breathing again instead of holding my breath. And what I want to know is in all those moments, leaving high school, going into undergrad, being in remedial classes, not knowing as much as you could or as other students um, who had more privileged schools and backgrounds who maybe their parents were already doctors, so they were already getting that information and that guidance and that mentorship from folks in their families. You not having those kinds of things and all these barriers and obstacle after obstacle and hurdle that you overcome. How did you overcome all those to still get here? Because what it seems like is you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be graduating from medical school, that you even had moments in your life where you told yourself you shouldn't be here graduating from medical school, and yet you're here. So how did you get here, even with all those obstacles? So, I mean, I think it, it came down to uh, like the, the just being surrounded by people who were supportive of me, um, who kind of pushed me. Um, when I was in those remedial classes, I was just going to switch my major and not even continue trying biology. Um, but then um, my fiance, who was my boyfriend at the time, told me, just try it. Um, if you hate it, you hate it. And then you just, you know, switch your career. But at least you can say you tried. And so I did. And then I actually did very well. And I actually think that the remedial classes might have helped me um, in the sense of creating a strong um, foundation that I didn't already have. And that's not to say that my high school um, science teachers weren't good teachers because they were. I think that in high school, I just wasn't as focused as I should have been. And, and so I think that kind of building block helped um, propel me forward and helped me to 
get recognized by my professors who were then supportive of me. But to me, that's a double-edged sword. It was beneficial to me, but I saw peers around me who ne didn't necessarily um, do well as well academically as I did and who were by the same professors or advisors who were encouraging me um, were actually being told something different. Like you, maybe you should, you know, um, consider a different career. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, you know, it, it was, it's a very, it was a very easy, like if I hadn't done well, I could have been on that other side where somebody would have just said, sure. Oh, you didn't get an A. Okay. Then no, you can't get into medical school, which is not yeah. true at all. Um, thankfully, um, at our school, they enacted like a STEM grant um, for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, I became a mentor through that program and learned about um, the Latino Medical Student Association, which is where I met, um, through which I met like the first Latino medical student, the first Latina physician. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You met the first Latino and Latina medical students where? Um, well, the medical student came to our school um, once the that program was established. Um, they, um, the coordinator of that program made a connection with the Latino yeah. Medical Student Association and found a medical student who happened to go to USC. And he happens to still be a very close friend and mentor of mine. And he Wait, was the first how, how, how old was he? How old was he when you met him? He was... He was a first-year medical student, so I'm going to say he was around 22, 23. Stop. He had no, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You're telling me that the first Latino medical student in USC was only four years ahead of you. No, no, no. Not the not, I meant the first that I ever met. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Got yeah. it. Thank no, no, you. No, no. All right. Yeah, yeah. I was like, it's that bad, Jennifer. It's no, that no. bad. <laughs> no, no. But yeah. how bad is it? I mean, how many Latinos are and people in the Latinx community are in the medical profession? Mm. That's a good question. It's, I think I, I have to say like less than 10% of the United States workforce is Latino or and, maybe around 10 percent yeah yeah and we represent like more than 50 percent of the country so. the population yes yeah. got it <laughs> okay okay all right so so you meet folks who become mentors you become mm -hmm. a mentor you mm -hmm. start to get told encouraging things and then you start to see that maybe other people were right do you then start to believe it or are you still questioning it along the way? You know, like the, the grade says you're doing well. The person says you can do it. The mentor says, I'm going to help you. When did you or did you ever start to believe it for yourself? Honestly, I feel that it was always that like imposter syndrome. It always felt like somebody's going to catch me. Like I'm not supposed to be here. Um, like there's, like, I, I always thought, oh, like, I got lucky. I got lucky. Um, I think I, I recognized that I was a good student, in, like, in biology. And I, I really enjoyed, like, my science course. I was very happy to be a biology major. And I enjoyed it. Um, but then when, once it was, like, I started to get, um, I remember I, I won a 50% a, a off for um, a Princeton, re, Princeton review course for the MCAT. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh this is like 
like one part of me was like, oh my God, this is like the sign. Like I won this. This is the sign that means like I'm destined. <laughs> but then uh-huh. another part was, then another part was, of me was like, this is luck. This is chance. Like mm. any, anyone could have gotten this. Um, and so, because <laughs> otherwise, I mean, I would have had to pay like $2,000 for a course and I don't know if I would have been able to afford that. But um, that's, that's so fascinating to me how, how we do this thing to ourselves where it's a sign from some like higher being or group of angels or people who are like (laughs) looking down and rooting us on or it's luck and chance and therefore it isn't about me at all. You know, it could have happened to anyone and therefore I'm still potentially or probably not deserving, you know, and that's just... That's just such an interesting, an interesting thing. So are you, are you trying to say that you still feel like an imposter now? Um, I think once I got to my third year and fourth year of medical student, a uh, medical school, when I've actually had the opportunity to work with patients, um, there were times that in, in third year, third year is definitely a difficult year because you're transitioning from being in class all the time to now, um, you know, actually being out in the like hospital and seeing patients and then being expected to have like this perfect presentation um, of this patient that you just met 30 minutes ago. Um, and then also trying to figure out what's going on with them, but you really just have no idea. And you're just hoping that you have like the full history of this patient. Um, so, I mean, at the beginning of the, even at the beginning of third year, and when you kind of, the thing is that you get the opportunity to work with your other peers. And of course there's, I mean, I, I know this, there's always people who are smarter than you, people who might be like not as smart as you or who are um, better at certain things than others. Sure. Um, but it's still so hard, I think, in medical school to not compare yourself um, to your peers. And that's something that I really had to learn throughout the year. Um, finally, I don't honestly, um, I, through third year, I learned like this is where I'm meant to be because of the experiences that I had, um, the connections that I had with my patients, which made me realize that I wanted to do family medicine where I could kind of, you know, have patients from like they say from like cradle to grave um Mm -hmm. you can deliver babies and you can take care of elderly patients women men and you could do everything right you're kind of the central person um it's kind of like i kind of learned that theme about myself through third year of medical school um so that made me feel empowered to and know that this is where i was meant to be but i didn't feel competent maybe until like january of this year yeah. So. Hmm. I wonder um let me let me pause for a second. So, you know, one of the things that I learned in in my own, you know, uh 40-something years and uh last few years of of having to really investigate and know a lot about my body and um medicine and uh reactions to particular medicines and the health insurance sort of um, system and how to navigate certain things. It's become very clear to me that medicine is, at least Western medicine, is based not on what you have, but what you don't have. 
So everything is based on elimination. Let me hear your symptoms. Tell me what's going on. Let me compare it to what we know. And if it doesn't match with something that we already know, that we've already discovered, that we already, um, you know, have logged, then we have no idea what it is. And it's now a guessing game, a very strategic, intelligent guessing game and testing to see what would work. And in fact, um, I'm allergic now to a medicine called azathioprine, and it almost killed me. And I was in the hospital for 11 days, and people thought I had a blood disease. And so people would have to put on full gowns, gloves, masks, hats, just to come visit me. And it was my doctor who, my doctor is at the medical school here, and he was, you know, going around doing rounds with medical students. And it was a medical student on the, you know, eighth, ninth day who said, wait, I think she's exhibiting symptoms of a severe allergy to the azathioprine medicine because I just was researching, reading and learning about that. And they stopped the medicine and everything changed. Had it not been for the medical student who had just been learning, reading and getting exposed to that moment and that issue, I don't know if I would have been able to live through that moment and still be here because it was getting worse. So a medical student who probably doubted themselves, who did not think they were good enough, who thought they were an imposter, who questioned, should I still be here, saved my life. And I hope that they know and remember that they did that to give them the kind of confidence because in the process of doing that, in the process of practicing Western medicine about elimination, I hope that medical students are able to eliminate also for themselves the doubt, right? Like you have been in medical school, graduating from medical school, practicing medicine, therefore according to Western medicine, you might actually be good at this. And you, this might actually be the perfect and exact thing that you were supposed to be doing because it was tested against all these other things and still here. So, I mean, I guess what I want to know at this point is you know so much more than many of us know now about things and I'm wondering if you have any tips. We've heard about cleaning your hands. We've heard about not touching your face. We've heard about not having prolonged exposure to people who are sick, regardless of what they have. Because um, it could be the flu or a cold, right? Like we're learning so much about things that we probably could have really been paying attention to before. But what else other than those things? Stay away, wash your hands, stay away from touching your face. What else for right now and for the rest of our lives? Because like you said, family medicine, cradle to grave. What do we need to know about how to really keep ourselves alive from cradle to grave? Yeah, I mean, in regards to specifically COVID, I think those are like the main things that we know right now. Even like the fact that we were in N95 masks is like very interesting because, um, you know, data says that um, 
COVID is not like an airborne illness. So it's not like malaria or like TB where the particles kind of stay in the air um, mm -hmm. for a long time. It's supposed to be like just respiratory. So basically it kind of like drops with your, you know, respiratory mm -hmm. um, like sneeze or whatever. So that's why it's kind of like stay six feet away and, and you should be safe. Um, but I think there's still so much to be known. And that's why for healthcare providers who are out there, um, seeing all these cases every single day, um, you know, the safe thing is to have this um, protective equipment. Um, but for the general population, it's kind of like what, you know, what you're mentioning, um, all those tips, but in regards to overall um, health, I think, I mean, it's, it's really like a family, family medicine to me is a lot about preventative medicine. Like, like the, the, big diseases that we really like take care of are, you know, for example, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, um, high cholesterol, those sorts of things. So kind of, um, you know, overall lifestyle, like I don't like to focus on weight. I like to say like, I don't want my patients to think I'm just focusing on their weight. I want them to be healthy and, ha and happy. Um, and at the same time, just, you know, watching those things. So I think, um, you know, doing whatever you can, whatever um, healthy means to you is like really the important thing um, and kind of connecting the different aspects of medicine. It's not just, um, you know, what your physical being is like, but what is your mental, um, you know, what is your mental status like? What is, what are you, um, how are you feeding your spiritual self? Um, and, and, you know, all those different, your social aspects of your life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what are those things that play into that physical being? Um, so I think just kind of trying to be mindful of all those aspects of your life and just being as healthy as you can in those regards. Um, I, I remember, um, I forgot. I, I don't remember the exact quote, but we had a, a, um, a geriatric physician give us a lecture once and he made us write it down and t told us to keep it, but I didn't keep it. Told us It was along the lines of um, essentially like if you live like, um, like a sedentary and um, like unhealthy lifestyle, um, then you're basically guaranteeing that you will have like these chronic illnesses um, in the in the long run right um, or these prevented pre preventative illnesses um, and I think those are the main things like that people really need to watch out for and it's just scary because a lot of these things are also invisible where in the sense of like diabetes you might not feel like like you're really sick a lot of people are like oh like I, oh yeah I have diabetes but I feel fine and then end up with like amputations or lose their vision or end up in dialysis and those are the things that really family physicians are trying to avoid you know and in the case of um, you know patients who have other illnesses who are that are not necessarily able to be prevented and kind of um, things that we other things is just like um, things that we can actually quote unquote um, control, for example, getting, um, for women, getting pap smears, mammograms when they're like age appropriate, um, for men and women when they're older, the colonoscopy is, um, kind of, we have screenings to get, to try and help those things before they get worse. 
Um, so those kind of things are like just really important, I think. And, and all of those things are still important right now. We have no idea really because the deadline or the goal date keeps getting pushed further and further back. And I think perhaps people are afraid to really give an accurate read of how long things are going to be like this because we're afraid to tell people the truth because it has long-term consequences and short-term consequences. If we're real and we tell people this is about a year to 18 months, that's a very different way to react to this moment than it's just going to be another two weeks and then another two weeks and then another two weeks. Uh Um, But everything you're talking about in terms of preventative medicine, people are still going to die or struggle in their lives from those things that are preventative because right now it's still hard to access your doctor and those tests and that type of, of life, you know, Mm -hmm. if being, you know, this, I always liken this to physics and I never took physics, but I read a book once about physics. And (laughs) the one thing that stuck out to me is things in motion stay in motion. And so if right now we're being asked to basically limit our motion, limit our interaction, limit our proximity physically to other people, is that what's going to stay? Are we going to stay disconnected? Are we going to stay isolated? Are we going to stay afraid for a little bit? And what can you imagine are the long-term effects of that? Like you're, you're in the middle of seeing where preventative, preventative diseases are right now. Then this pandemic comes. It completely throws in a, an ingredient in this cake that no one was thinking. Mm-hmm. What can you foreshadow or imagine are going to be some of the new spikes in preventative disease at the end of this because of this? Yeah, so, I mean, you're kind of alluding to it where all these um, – preventative measures that you know it's kind of routine for us to be doing now because of COVID we're just kind of putting them on the back burner so something that I've been reading um about is the the American College of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology kind of sends out um different like emails every day and kind of like reading up about you know, the the pap smears and the mammograms and kind of like what repercussion that will have in terms of number of breast cancer cases or um, cervical cancer cases um, that might be caught at a later time because of um, the fact that they are being postponed. Right. I mean, the, the cervical cancer, I would say, even now, it's, it's still something that we worry about a lot because for um, like like older women who di- had, didn't have the opportunity to get the Gardasil vaccine, you know, there's still like a chance that they can get um, cervical cancer from HPV. Um, and so I think like that's definitely something scary. Like, a, you know, there's a population of women who have never been um, vaccinated for HPV and who are at risk for developing cervical cancer um, and might not be getting the screenings. Um, and cervical cancer is, uh, uh, you know, a cancer that does um, 
kind of grow a little faster than other cancers. Um, so that's, you know, kind of scary and, and the breast cancer as well. Um, so I can't say for sure, but I, I imagine that it's going to have a burden on the fact that we're going to have to do so much catch up work yeah. on people that need to get these preventative um, screenings done. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, will there be more cases because of this? There could be, there could not be. Um, I think it, it, I can't really say for sure, but it's scary to think about. Yeah. Well, I'm going to remind you of some things that you actually mentioned along the way, which was, I think we're all right now at home having a little bit of an imposter syndrome for ourselves. I thought I was healthy, but am I? I thought I was doing well, but have I always been doing well? I thought I had some money in savings. Now it turns out that's going to be my income. I thought I was going to be able to do this work on the house, and now I just have to pay the mortgage or pay rent. You know, like everything that we thought we were doing for preventative, holistic care of our whole selves um, has been put on hold to deal with the most immediate. We've gone from long-term to the shortest of short-term and just yeah. you know, telling people, I keep hearing and being told, just take it day by day, day by day. And the last time I took it day by day was when I thought I was the closest to not having any more days, right? So it puts yeah. this fear automatically in people. And one of the things in your own journey of graduating from high school and going on to medical school and now being uh, about to start your residency was that there were people around in your life, peers, uh, older folks, mentors, um, who encouraged you and told you, you've got this, you could do this, just give it a try and believed in you. And I want to remind you that I still believe in you and I still believe in us. I believe in us as a people, um, as humans, as folks in, this, in, this, in these states, in this country and, and in the world, I still believe in us. That maybe if we tried it, maybe we can still come out of this and still be able to do all the things we ever wanted to do. So my last question to you is, I want you to imagine that it's five years into the future you are five years older. Everyone around you is five years older. Everything in your life is now five or five years older. <laughs> How would you finish the following sentence? I want you to imagine that you are maybe at home or this home that you've known uh, for most of your life and you find yourself saying out loud to somebody, you know what? I'm actually really grateful for that pandemic in 2020 because at least now I or we have blank. At least we have a foundation of how to uh, work with, um, you know, very difficult illnesses or emergency cases um, that we can we have improved our healthcare system in a way that will be beneficial to our entire population. What do you think that's going to take? What, what does from now into five years from now, how do we get there then? If that's what you hope and aspire to say, 
in five years, then what do the next five years look like? I think that the next five years look like physicians, you know, having to really step out. I think for me, even for me, especially for me in particular, who is an introvert and sometimes scared to like say or speak up for myself or speak up for my population. I need to, I think in these next years in residency, really learn um, to be an advocate, to be involved, involved in like the, the health policies um, and really push for, um, for the populations who are most vulnerable and who really need, uh, who need us the most right now. And, and even outside of situations like this need us. Yeah. I'll say that, that as your former teacher, I learned that right away too, when things were really bad, that while I could control absolutely what was happening in my classroom and I could protect you. And when security came by with their wands and they were going to look at everybody's backpacks and violate everybody's privacy and treat everybody as if they were a criminal, I could control and say, not today, not this classroom or I will pick the students and I picked the smartest and nerdiest ones who would never have anything (laughs) on them. Right. Like, that I could control, but at yeah. some point it wasn't enough because I couldn't just control and defend and protect this small group because that was going to be exhausting. It had to be systemic. I had to advocate on behalf of any student, every student, anywhere, because it shouldn't be happening to any student anywhere. And you can't change a system one person, one patient, one student at a time. And so I, again, believe in you and your ability to be that advocate and to speak up and to know that you have years and stories and people and minutes and years of experience to be able to say, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there and you've been in so many places and I, I, cannot, I cannot wait for you Um, to be that strong advocate for our communities. Um, And I'm so proud of you and I'm so excited for you and I'm so worried about you. And I'm also so confident in your ability to do everything that you can to help yourself and to help all the rest of us. And, um, and I really want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insight and your experiences with us. Um, You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. Stay well and stay human. Mm -hmm.